have you ever gone to like an orchestra or watched a musical or a marching band to see someone that you know, but there are so many people on stage or in the group that you can't actually find the person that you're looking for? Or you've watched a football game and something crazy happens or there's flags flying everywhere and you have no idea why, which is usually my experience, because you don't even know where to look. I remember in particular about four years ago, there was a student who was in his marching band. It was actually John's oldest son, Kyle, and their school got to go to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And I didn't have cable and, you know, I was out playing the turkey bowl, but I made sure that my mom recorded it so that I could go over later and watch the game and find Homestead and find Kyle. And so I went over and I watched the entire parade and, you know, about an hour and a half or two hours later, I never saw Homestead. And so then I texted John or somebody else and said, okay, when exactly do they come on? And then I rewound, tried to find them again, think I found Homestead, and then looked for that bright red hair under a marching band cap. Thought it would be easy to find, but no, I never actually found Kyle. I just did not know where to look, and I completely missed him. I missed his moment of spotlight. But when you know what you're trying to look for, it gets so much easier to find it, right? When someone tells you, I'll be in this part of the stage or on the screen or I'm going to be wearing this, or when sportscasters replay it and slow it down and circle where you should be looking, <laughs> suddenly it's so much easier to know what happened. And in many ways, this process, right, this clue giving or signposting of this is where you should look, this is what to look for, that's what John the Baptist does. That is his role in our story. He gives people cues of what the Messiah will really be like and prepares their hearts to see and receive him for when he comes. So John's role, right? John the Baptist's role is to say, get ready. The Messiah is coming. The kingdom is at hand and it is not what you expect. And so he gives them clues of what to look for instead. We're going to look this morning at how exactly he prepares people to see the true, long-awaited Messiah and how he's turning them in a different direction to be ready to follow Jesus when he comes. Today's passage is Luke 3, 1 to 18, and we'll be going through it kind of bit by bit. So if you like to read along, I encourage you to keep it open. And otherwise, the verses will be on the screen as we go. So Luke 3, 1 reads... In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So last week, if you were here, we heard about the priest Zechariah and his praise and proclamation of hope in the temple as he was given a son who will prepare the way for the Lord. And so now we jump ahead to that son as an adult, John. And so those first verses set us in the time frame of Jesus' ministry, and John is preparing for Jesus. And the story has now moved from the temple to the wilderness. Now, repeatedly in Scripture, Wilderness itself represents a transitional or a liminal space, a space in between, a space of waiting, a space where things are unruly or undefined. They're open and expansive. And John's preaching and baptism in the wilderness symbolize a shift that is beginning to take place as he prepares people for Jesus. 
Because this Messiah will not just be found in the temple, but he will be outside its walls. He will be among the lowly and the least expected. He will be in the wilderness. So God's presence, made fully known in the person of Jesus, will no longer be confined to the temple as it once was. God's presence will no longer only be accessed within temple walls, but he will reach all people, reach to the farthest places, including the countryside and way out beyond in the wild. Because things are changing. God's presence will no longer be contained and confined. John is preparing the way as it was prophesied in Isaiah, verse 4 to 6. Luke writes, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So Isaiah paints this symbolic vision of how the Lord will come and clear the way. The Lord that John is preparing for, he will level mountains and valleys and smooth out rough parts and straighten the crooked paths, which both visualizes the redemption that God will bring through the Messiah, as well as this imagery of mountains made low and valleys filled in, meaning that the barriers that might have inhibited people from coming will be gone. Now all people will be able to come in because the mountains and valleys are gone and all can see the salvation. So John's preaching and his baptism of repentance is a major signpost that this long-awaited Messiah is finally coming after those 400 years of silence and exile, as we heard about last week. Now, one story that helps me visualize the role of John the Baptist is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a very familiar story to many of us, but in this story, there are four children who find themselves in another world called Narnia. And it's been under the rule of an evil witch who has made it so that Narnia is always in winter, but it is never Christmas. However, with the arrival of the children into this world, a prophecy has been set in motion that the true king of Narnia, Aslan, or the Jesus figure, is going to return to free Narnia from this perpetual winter in this curse. Now, one of the first major signs that change is coming is the arrival of Christmas, specifically Father Christmas. Father Christmas embodies the hope that people have that Aslan is coming, and he tells them that Aslan is on the move. His very presence in their world is testimony to that. And as such, after encountering Father Christmas in this winter that's never supposed to have a Christmas, the children and the other creatures start to become aware of other signs that Aslan is on the move and that winter is weakening. They start seeing areas where the snow is slushier or there's mud patches. So it's still winter. It's still cursed and frozen. But change is coming, and they can see it, and they can feel it. I think it's so poignant that C.S. Lewis chose Father Christmas to embody this role because he embodies the nature of Advent, a time that we remember when the Israelites were waiting but knew that the Messiah was coming. And so in Advent, we too are waiting. We might feel the weight of winter and see frozen parts of our world and in our hearts, and we long with hope for the days when it will all melt away and that redemption will be complete. 
But in this story of Narnia, Father Christmas is not just a symbol that things are changing. He also equips the children with tools, tools that they will need when Azan arrives, and they will need to participate in his work of delivering and freeing Narnia. They will have jobs to do alongside of him, and they have to be ready. And so, too, John prepares people to see and receive Jesus for when he comes. He equips them with the tools he needs, they need. He's not only a symbol that things are changing, this wild prophet in the wilderness in contrast to orderly priests in the temple, but he also prepares people to be ready for the true Messiah who is already on the move. Now, how does he prepare them? By calling them to repent. Perhaps more broadly, in his preaching and baptism of repentance, he reveals some key ways that Jesus will not be exactly what they had expected. And they need to shift their expectations and their living to be ready to see him. Now, the word repentance literally means turning. So not only is John calling people to repent and turn from their sins and their wrongdoings, but also turning from one view of God, one expectation of a Messiah, to another. And in shifting their expectations and the understanding of the Messiah, he calls out the sins that have come from their false or narrow expectations. And he challenges them to live differently in light of their repentance, to live differently in light of their desire to turn towards this other way towards God. So what are those expectations that needed shifting? Well, the first, as I've already hinted at, is that John in the wilderness himself symbolizes a shift, that the Messiah will not be confined in the religious order as they know it, but he will actually redefine almost everything they understand about what it means to follow and honor God. He will be out in the world. He will seem to the priests and the religious order as if he is untamed in the wilderness. Particularly shocking is that the Messiah will not just be savior to the Jews, but the Lord and his salvation will be for all. Now Luke already emphasized that in the Isaiah citation as we read in verse six, but he continues that message as John warns the Jews not to depend on their religious status for security in verses seven and eight. These verses read, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, he doesn't exactly lay out why they are a brood of vipers. <laughs> but one thing we do see in verse 8 is this complacency that seems to be among them. That because they are Jewish, because they have Abraham as their father, they're set. Their understanding was that their Jewish identity was the key to being part of God's kingdom, his nation, part of his family. That was their ticket in. And John resets that expectation here, saying, that's no longer your safety net. God is looking at your hearts and your lives, and God can make anyone his child, even these stones, if he wants to. In other words, once again, the kingdom of God is going beyond the limits of the temple, beyond the children of Abraham, and out into the countryside, available to all people. And I think this challenging message rings just as true for us today. Because while we may not be children of Abraham or find our security in that particularly, 
how often do we still see ways that the church or that we try to define who is or isn't in because it's comforting to know that we're in? And so just as John challenged the Jews, perhaps we as a global church, church capital C, need to be reminded that God's spirit and salvation is not just for people who live exactly this way, the people that we would define as in based on certain characteristics that we have ascribed. He's not stuck in our church buildings, but God, the one who can raise up stones for his children, is out in the spaces that we would call the wilderness, those spaces that we would say are unreachable. He says salvation is available for all. Now, secondly, a major shift that John signals is that that Messiah, that salvation, would not come about by a political revolution. He would not lead them to military dominance like the days of King David, like they expected and hoped for. But instead, he would be a humble, countercultural rabbi who calls his followers to live lives of humility, generosity, gratitude, compassion. He would not save the people. He would not save creation by overthrowing the Roman government, but through sacrificial death, through a radical movement of grace and inclusion, love and justice. And so John prepares the crowds for this kind of Messiah, this kind of kingdom that Jesus would inaugurate, by telling them how to live in preparation for this kind of Messiah. He says the fruit of their repentance, the life preparing for this Messiah is one that requires them to live distinct from the world around them, to live in humility and generosity. In verse 10, the people, likely being shaken up by call it, being called a brood of vipers, ask John what to do. What does the fruit of repentance look like? So verse 10 to 14, Luke writes, what should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So in short, he says, everyone, be generous and share. Tax collectors, you're expected to overcollect. Stop doing that. Turn from your greed and your corruption. He says, soldiers, same message for you. Your leaders expect you to extort people and get more money, which you think is okay because you think you're underpaid and you deserve it. But don't do that. He says, do your work with integrity. Not selfishness, but be content. Practice gratitude, not striving and taking like everyone else around you. This is what repentance lived out looks like. And so by turning from one way of life to this new way that John is preaching to them, they are turning in the direction that Jesus will soon call them to go even further. And more broadly, they are turning from one expectation, one notion of a Messiah to another which changes what they're looking for and how they're living in the waiting. Now, John's message was so powerful, perhaps so new to people, 
that Luke tells us in verse 15 that they were waiting expectantly and eagerly began to wonder if maybe John is the Messiah. Maybe we found him. But John is just the warm-up. John says in verse 16 that the one who comes after him will be far more powerful, baptizing not with water but with the Holy Spirit, with the one who equips and guides us to live like Jesus. John preaches repentance, but it is Jesus who will bring forgiveness. John challenges them to generosity and justice, but Jesus will be the one who inaugurates the full kingdom of God, the full picture of what it means to live like him. He is the one who will reunite heaven and earth. He is the one who will make the rough ways smooth so that all can see God's salvation and be with him again. John prepares them to see this this unexpected kind of Messiah. He prepares them not just to see it, but to participate in Jesus' way, to follow this humble yet countercultural way. Because John's instructions here are just the beginning of what it will mean to be a disciple of Jesus. But it resets their hearts and minds to be ready. By painting a picture of the Messiah and what a repentant life looks like, he turns them in the right direction. They have been living this way, looking for this one thing. But by resetting their expectations of the Messiah and telling them how to live in light of their repentant hearts, they have now turned another way so that when they see Jesus farther down this way, this new way that they're facing, when he calls them to follow after him, to go even further into the kingdom, they will be ready to follow with their whole selves. They are facing him and primed and ready to follow. In Advent, we remember the Jews' long wait for the Messiah, their hope and longing. And today, we hear the words of the one who prepared the way for Jesus to finally come. But Advent's not just a time that we remember Israel's waiting, but a time that we also engage with our own waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to finish the work he began 2,000 years ago. I mean, even as we remember his coming, it's hard not to long for him to just come back and finish the work that he began. Our world is so broken, so desperate for the completion and fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. It is painful how far we are from that vision of the new heaven and new earth that we can't help but long for. We long for that full healing and restoration of our world. Or closer to home, we may have areas of need or longing in which we personally need Jesus to come into our community or into our family or into our own weary hearts and souls. There are so many ways that we individually and communally and globally wait for Jesus. Sometimes it's with excitement and eagerness, knowing that he has come and will come. Sometimes it's with weariness and despair because waiting gets hard. Yet there's also this tendency that the longer we wait for something, the more set or rigid our expectations can become about what it is we're waiting for. As we wait for long periods of time, we can get fixed on that one thing that we're waiting for. And the church at large has been waiting for Jesus for 2,000 years starting with the disciples who thought they would see him in their lifetime, and we've been waiting ever since. 
it's hard for us to know how our view as the global historical church has been diminished or what has been lost in that long history of waiting that we are a part of and have inherited. And personally, many of us feel like we've been waiting for something for a long time. Whether it's wrongs that don't get reconciliation or justice, or needs that are going unmet, or longings that go unfulfilled. The longer we wait, the more we may focus in on that one thing we want and that we're looking for. One particular way in which we're looking for that desire to come true. But perhaps Jesus is actually already at work, already inviting us into that fulfillment, but it's not in that way that we expect, and so we miss it. We can't see it. John prepared the way by helping people not miss Jesus, especially because he knew they were looking for him in this one particular way, and he was going to be different. And so he had to help people see beyond that specific picture. Because Jesus was different, but he was the one that they longed for. So John's job was to help them recognize it when they saw it, so they could follow him when the time came. And so then John's message for us today remains a challenge to consider how our own understanding and expectation of Jesus may have shifted or narrowed or become skewed in the periods of waiting and longing. Now, to some extent, having a limited view of Jesus is inevitable because we worship a God who is beyond our comprehension. We're human. We all have biases. We all have certain filters or worldviews that will give us a lens. And that's not a bad thing, but it is something to try to be aware of. We all have certain parts of scripture that we favor, certain aspects of Jesus that we favor, and that's a natural tendency. But John's message of repentance, to turn towards a wilderness expectation of the Messiah, not a contained temple version of the Messiah, is a challenge to us to consider where our blind spots might be. For example, I love the stories in which Jesus shows compassion and love for the outsiders and sinners, which is often to teach the religious leaders a lesson about inclusion, an implicit way of saying, stop being judgmental and exclusive. I love these people that you think are the outsiders. But then there are those times that I read those stories or read the Gospels and realize that there are more ways that I am like the religious leaders than I am like the outcast and sinner. And Jesus has some challenging and harsh words for me. But even if I realize that, even when I realize that, I just try to push past it because that's really uncomfortable and I'd rather just go back to that safe, easy version. I want to keep Jesus safe and tame and manageable and I want him to be transformational but not overly disruptive. You know, transform me and challenge me but within reason. And this reminds me of another famous scene in that story once again of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. This is before they have found Father Christmas, but when the kids have just entered Narnia and they're asking their friends, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, about who Aslan is and if he's a man. There are no humans in Narnia. And Mr. Beaver responds, certainly, certainly not. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I would thought he was a man. 
Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Jesus is the king, and he is so, so good, but he is not safe. And yet for many of us, he has become safe. And that's not to say the point is to be afraid of Jesus, but to consider the aspects of him, to consider his person, his work, what he's like, and the ways that we have tamed or lost or narrowed him in our waiting. Ways that we have made him safe and comfortable, and dare we even admit it, ordinary and cliche. And one reason this is problematic the reason John's message was one of repentance is because as Israel waited, they limited their expectation of God. And in doing so, in thinking the Messiah only cares about what happens in the temple, that allowed them to fall into the sin of extortion and corruption and not caring about the needy around them like everyone else. And so John's picture of Jesus challenged this notion and urged them to repent of that sin and live differently. John uses harsh language, and yet verse 18 says that it was good news because it prepared them to follow and receive the true Messiah and his good news and his gospel. And so, too, as we consider where we've neglected or overlooked or tamed Jesus, perhaps we can see how it has led us, knowingly or unknowingly, into a sin that has come from our blind spots and turn instead towards a greater readiness to know Jesus more fully and to participate with him in his redemptive work out in the wilderness. Because that is good news. So to help us more deeply engage this morning with John's call to repent and consider where we might be missing the Messiah, we're going to do a simple reflection. Each of you has an index card in your bulletin and a pencil under your chair or near your chair. And I want you to take those out right now. What I want you to do is simply write down the first three adjectives or characteristics that come to mind when you think of Jesus. Don't overthink it, just the first three words that come to mind. And write those down. Now, in a second, we're going to put up a slide. That might look a little overwhelming at first, but don't worry. I'm going to give you lots of time to take it in. But it's purposely a lot of words to help us get a bigger sampling of how we can describe Jesus. You can go ahead and put that up now.
And as we look at this list, I want you to consider which ones strike you as unusual or that would rarely come to mind if you were to make this list or that you would not really associate with Jesus. Or perhaps there are some contradictory words and you're not really sure how he can be both of those things. Nick and the band are going to come up and they're going to be playing some music as we take another minute to reflect. Because what I want you to do now is to turn over that card as a symbolic gesture of turning towards a fuller picture of Jesus. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you a word or words that perhaps have been in your blind spots. And just write those down. Just write down a few words that maybe don't come to mind, typically. And if you want to take it a step further, ask God with those words, what then should we do? Just as the crowds asked John. As the Spirit reveals aspects of Jesus that are less familiar or comfortable for you, what is the fruit of turning towards that Jesus? What is the action that would reflect a repentance and fuller knowledge of him? And so I want you to ask the Spirit this morning to show us a fuller Jesus so that we can be prepared to see where he is on the move, where he's inviting us to join him in new places out in the wilderness. So take a moment now to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal new words and new aspects of Jesus to you.